Episode of Evidence-Based Radio. Hopefully, this is going to be one of the last quarantine episodes. But as always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start with some good news. Um, but first, a word from you, our sponsors, so to speak. Um, as you may have heard already this uh, week, this is our pledge week, and so VFR is completely, completely volunteer-run and community-supported. We have a couple of underwriting contracts, but other than that, all of our operating budget for the year comes from listeners like you. And so if you have a few dollars to spare, that would be amazing. And we would love it if you would go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And so you can set up either a one-time donation there, or if you want to be an absolute rock star, you can sign up for a reoccurring subscription type donation. So once again, that is VFR, that's Valley Free Radio, I should say, dot org slash donate. Um, and it really, really, our operating budget comes out of that, those donations. Um, and so we incredibly appreciate anything you can do to help us out, to keep the lights on, to keep the rent paid and to allow us to uh, be able to get new equipment. And so, yeah, I'm very excited to get back into the studio, so I'm glad that it'll be there. Uh, and that is in part due to the generous donations, again, of people just like you. All right, so let's get back to that good news. Now, some of this is slightly old, you probably have already heard about this, which is that the CDC has announced that people who are fully vaccinated and have waited the requisite two weeks after their second vaccination can now forgo masks in most settings, including indoors. Now, they still recommend wearing masks on public transportation just because you're usually in a pretty confined space and you're interacting with all sorts of people who may have various ways of having been uh, vaccinated, unvaccinated, coming from places, especially if you're traveling uh, internationally, coming from places that may have variants that um, we don't want to be spreading in the U.S. And so, you know, if you're going to be on public transportation, definitely keep that mask on and um, but for the most part, you can start getting back to normal if you're fully vaccinated. Now, Massachusetts still has its own rules and they're being, um, they're being updated. And, um, you know, we'll just have to keep an eye on those. But it is very, very good. Um, so yeah, that is very exciting. So um, in fact, I, you know, I actually 
got to hang out with my best friend uh, the other week. And we were able to be inside her house, watching TV, eating food, and petting her kitties. And it was glorious. I did not want to leave. Um, so if you have not gotten a vaccine yet, what are you waiting for? Especially if you like listening to this show, because you know that this show is very, very much pro-vaccine. <laughs> um, that is one of my particular uh, soap boxes. So um, definitely, if you haven't yet gotten your vaccine, go get it. Um, if you have people you know who are vaccine hesitant, um, you can, you know, appeal to them to say, you know, the sooner you get a vaccine, the sooner that you can get back to normal. The sooner more people get vaccines, the sooner the whole country can get back to normal. Um, and so um, there was also a little bit of confusion this week on whether or not we would need boosters. Um, the CEOs of Pfizer and uh, Moderna made some sort of commentary about maybe needing booster shots. But frankly, I think that was more for their shareholders than anything else. So um, a lot of the public health uh, experts that have been um, queried on this are saying, you know, if they actually think that, they need to show the uh, experimental evidence for that. Because as far as we've seen up to even six months, because people, you know, have been getting this vaccine now for many, many months. So, you know, people who had, for instance, the Pfizer vaccine at six months had tons of antibodies. Um, and so uh, I don't think that that's an issue um, as far as needing boosters. And we may end up needing a booster, but again, um, the actual science that's been done it seems to say that this vaccine is working really well. It's working against all of the va variants that are currently in the country, and um, it's just a literal lifesaver. Um, and so not only is there good news on the vaccine front, but there is actually a bit of good news on the antibiotic, antibiotic resistance side of things. Now, I've mentioned that many times on this show as well. Uh, it is a real problem. And of course, pandemics like COVID-19 are immediate temporal threats that grab headlines and are really, you know, require large mobilization at a specific time. But antibiotic resistance is almost like a silent stalker waiting to emerge as a major force in reducing the efficacy of modern medicine's ability to treat what were once easily healed infections. And so a group of researchers have discovered after 70 years, the way in which Callistin, one of only 17 reserve group antibiotics on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines actually kills bacteria. Now, it may seem odd that we've been using it for over 70 years, but never quite understood how it ultimately kills infections such as E. coli, uh, Klebsiella, Pneumoniae and Pseudomonas aragonae. 
Ergigona, um, Eruginosa. <laughs> Sorry, some of these Latin names, it's very hard. Uh, but now we have a more complete picture, and this could aid us in preserving and boosting this the efficacy of this drug in the future. And so you may have heard me mention that there have already been a few people who have had such extensively drug-resistant infections that they were ultimately unable to be treated and died. Um, and that's still very rare right now, but that's a bad sign. We really need to be working on this problem. Now, luckily, another reserve antibiotic is usually able to treat patients. As the global crisis of antibiotic resistance continues to accelerate, Callistin is becoming more and more important as the very last option to save the lives of patients infected with superbugs, says microbiologist Akshay Sabnis of the, from the Imperial College London in the UK. By revealing how this old antibiotic works, we could come up with new ways to make it kill bacteria even more effectively, boosting our arsenal of weapons against the world's superbugs. Now, part of the problem, though, is that colistin is not without its own risks. The drug's toxicity can lead to a number of side effects, which requires lower doses to be administered. And so these lower doses may in turn then not be enough to combat the infection. And so by finally discovering the mechanism by which the drug is able to kill, they have found that there may be a way to couple it with a new experimental antibiotic called mirapavidin to reduce the dosage needed and to boost the efficacy. Now, it turns out we've known for decades how colistin attacks the outer membrane of a bacteria. It works by, mining, by binding to the outer cellular membrane of gram-negative bacteria and specifically targets molecules called lipopolysaccharides. And it is actually able to punch holes in the outer membrane. Now, what we didn't know and what researchers weren't quite clear about is how it was able to pierce the inner membrane because the inner membrane has a much lower amount of those lipopolysaccharides. But it turns out that the same process does apply and the drug is able to fully poke holes in the membranes, basically making the bacteria pop like a balloon. Um, and so knowing this, the researchers paired the drug with mirapavidin because that drug boosts the levels of lipopolysaccharides in the inner membrane of a bacteria. Results from the lab are promising. It is anticipated that a combination of colistin and mirapavidin could enhance the low treatment efficacy of polymyxin antibiotics and may also limit the toxic side effects associated with both compounds by enabling the use of lower doses of the drugs. The authors write in their study, modulation of lipopolysaccharide levels in the cytoplasmic membrane can enhance colistin activity, provide, providing the foundation for new approaches to enhance the efficacy of this antibiotic of last resort. So that is pretty exciting.
And so in mice infected with P. arginosa bacteria, treatment with either colistin or muripavidin failed to quickly reduce the amount of bacterial load in the animals. However, a combination of the two drugs left to a, led to a roughly 500-fold reduction in bacterial colony-forming units in just three hours. That's impressive. Of course, here's now where I have to uh, fill you full of caveats and disclaimers. Um, Muripavidin is as noted above, still an experimental drug and has not been approved yet for clinical trials in humans. And so there is always a risk when you have something that works great in a lab, works amazingly in mice. Sometimes it does not work out for humans. Um, it's just the way that, um, you know, chemistry works and the way that, um, you know, even though mice are usually really good analogs, there are plenty of drugs that looked miraculous in, my, in mice that did not end up coming to market. Um, but hopefully this is going to be one of the many that does end up making it to the market. And if it does, that will be very exciting because if it's ultimately approved, it could be a potent tool in conjunction with colistin to combat the current strains of multi-drug resistant bacteria. And it could also help um, if we keep it out of the hands of, for instance, um, animal uh veterinarian medicine, because I know um, I remember talking about colistin before because it was being used in uh, some uh, veterinarian, uh, veterinary medicine uh, situations. And that was also a worry because again, the more something is used, the more chance there is for the bacteria to become resistant to it. Um, and so having these kinds of combination drugs can really help with that. Um, and it's something that we often find we need to use, for instance, um, you know, when combating AIDS, for instance, you know, people take what has traditionally been called a cocktail of drugs because not one drug does everything that needs to be done. But if you can find drugs that work mutually together then you can have a real solution. So that is very exciting, very much potentially though. Um, <laughs> I wish it was further along, but I did want to talk about it because it is something that it doesn't necessarily literally keep me up at nights, but um, anybody, antibiotic drug resistance um, is one of those things that's always in the back of my mind as a concern. Um, I've talked about before how I read a story about antibiotic resistance, uh, antibiotic resistant TB when I was a little too young. Um, it's right up there with the time that I read a story when I was in like fourth grade about killer bees. And then for the next like five years, I was convinced that killer bees were going to come to Massachusetts and that it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, luckily, the killer bees have not made it here. Um, and, you know, most people have learned how to uh, deal with killer bees 
Apparently they make really yummy honey. Uh, so, uh, that was, that was one of those original versions of, uh, you know, sensationalized, uh, journalism <laughs> way back in the, uh, way back in the, uh, early nineties, <laughs> um, maybe even the late eighties. Um, so anyways, uh, before we move on, I do need to, uh, reiterate that this is, uh, our pledge drive week. Um, and so if you have a few dollars to spare, then, uh, we would really love it. And so you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. That's the easiest and best way to do it. Um, and so there are options there for, again, both a one-time donation and also for a reoccurring subscription donation. And every little bit helps. Um, and we are just, every year we're overwhelmed by how generous people are. And um, it really does, again, our entire budget is based on donations almost exclusively. Uh, we do have a couple of underwriting uh, contracts, but the vast majority comes from people like you who are able to donate, um, you know, five, ten, twenty dollars, a dollar, fifty dollars, if you're feeling uh, really generous and really care about local uh, independent radio, because uh, that is a big thing that we offer is that we are local, we are run all by local volunteers, people from the community of Western Massachusetts. We are, you know, still bringing new people on board. Uh, there were several new shows that were added this year, despite it being in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, you know, we are able to do pretty much whatever we want to do, as long as it's within FCC guidelines. Um, and so we don't have to worry about uh, not talking about um, certain things because they're not advertiser friendly, because we don't have advertisers. We are supported by the community. You keep the lights on, you keep the rent paid, you keep us in those fuzzy uh foam covers for our, uh, microphones. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's really important. So once again, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. All right. So we're going to completely switch gears as we often do here. And we're going to move on from potentially exciting medical news to super exciting weird fossils. Um, I shouldn't say weird. I should say, uh, rare and really, um, special. And so a crazy new fossil has been found again. I shouldn't be saying crazy, uh, <laughs> which has frozen in time, not one, but two acts of predation from the Jurassic period. So at some point in the Jurassic, a squid-like creature grabbed a lobster-like crustacean in its hooked tentacles. 
Just as it was starting to enjoy its prey, the hunter became the prey of a much larger predator, which tore Chunk out of the middle of the squid and moved off. The squid and its meal sank to the bottom and eventually fossilized. The vignette was discovered around 180 million years later in a quarry in Germany. Germany has all the best fossils. <laughs> That's not actually true. America has some pretty cool fossils and uh, lots of other places do too. But uh, the the shales in Germany, just some of them have just, I mean, that's where Archaeopteryx comes from. So, you know, they do have very good uh, fossil beds. But anyways, scientists now think that they know what might have been the phantom predator. And so the extinct squid-like cephalopod, a belemonite, was most likely attacked by an ancient crocodile, shark, or other large fish. Remarkably, most of the belemnite soft parts between the arm crown and the calcite rostrum are missing, the authors wrote. We suggest that this represents that this represents remains of a meal of a vertebrate predator, possibly of the early Jurassic shark Hybidus hafianus. This is remarkable because it informs about the behavior of a cephalopod and a vertebrate predator. And so the fossil shows that the predator took much of the soft parts of the squid while leaving all of the hard bits, including the rostrum and mega hooks from the arm crown. This may have been adaptive, as there's actually an example that has been found of a shark fossil filled with so many belemnite beaks in its stomach that researchers believe it actually caused the shark's death. Um, so, you know, these are hard chitinous materials, and so they aren't easily digested, and so they just stayed in the shark's belly until it couldn't ingest any more food in order to get nutrients. Um, and there's actually a picture of it, and it's pretty cool. Um, I try and remember to add that one. I've actually, just to point out, I did add some pictures um, to evidencebasederata.com. So if you want to go there, um, I have added some pictures from, um, the story that are pretty cool. There's an artist's, uh, interpretation of what might've happened and, um, that's pretty cool. So, and so one of the important points of the paper is that the classification of the fossil as a leftover fall, somewhat like a whale fall, but involving predation. Once the fall had been fossilized, it then became a pabulite, a term the authors have created to describe a specific type of fossil which has not been well studied. Many pabulites, such as solitary heads, fins, and tails, have been found, but few are on display or have been described. The authors argue that better study of these remains may help us create a better picture of the Jurassic food web. Um, and so that is a big thing because it's really hard to tell behavior from fossils. And that's why things like this are so special and intriguing and unique because it actually shows behavior you know, you can tell that this squid was eaten by something else. 
And so a lot of times animals die, uh, you know, due to uh, natural causes or they die in catastrophes that aren't predation events that don't have to do with their behavior. And so when we find fossils that show us behavior, those are so rare and interesting. Um, so for instance, the way that we figured out that dinosaurs actually uh, brooded their eggs was that we found a dinosaur that had been fossilized as it was sitting on its eggs. So there must have been a landslide or a volcanic eruption or something that instantly buried both the nest and the dinosaur um, quickly enough that they were able to be uh, frozen in situ. And that's how we found out that dinosaurs, um, you know, actually reared and brooded their eggs like modern day birds do. Um, and so things like that are really, really rare. Um, and so when you find something like this, it's really cool. And especially something like a food chain, you know, you can find fossils that have other fossils inside of them. So you can infer that they swallowed those fossils because they're in the general area of the, of where the stomach would have been. But it's also really cool when you can find these sorts of things. Um, and one of the other things that they thought that they mentioned was that it's actually just even though parts of it are missing, like it's actually just a really well-preserved fossil, like the crown with all of the tentacles and the rather large claws. Um, uh, it, the, I don't know exactly how they worked, but they had, but this, the, um, they had, the Belmanites had two big claws right by their uh, beak. And so very interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it's very exciting and very cool because whenever we can infer behavior, that's a big deal. All right. So um, we're going to move on. But once again, uh, just a reminder, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, we absolutely rely on your support and we absolutely thank you for your support. Um I personally have been doing this for many years now, and it's just been such great fun. Um, I love being able to share science with other people. I love being able to actually talk about these things that excite me without driving my friends to distraction uh, or, you know, absolutely um, driving my loved ones to distraction. And so um, I love doing this. I love sharing this with you. I love being able to um, read all of these amazing uh, papers and stories and find out all about the cool things that are going on in the world. And um, as I've mentioned before, I like this to be kind of a positive place. Uh, sometimes we dip our toes into uh, the bad. Um, and, uh, oh, just... Um, not to put a downer on things, but um, I do want to acknowledge what's going on in the world right now, and um, it's very upsetting, and um, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that too much tonight, because we're supposed to be talking about positive things, and also, um, you know, we really want to focus on 
uh, the Valley at the moment and this amazing um, radio show and this amazing radio station, I should say, uh, that is able to provide such a unique opportunity for members of the Valley. Um, I think there's something really cool about still doing radio. Um, you know, podcasts are very cool, but I think it's something very cool about still being able to talk to your local community and be able to tune in and hear about local news and local um, views and opinions. And so I think it's really cool and important and we can't do it without you, literally. Um, we cannot do it without the people who listen, um, helping us and, uh, you know, donating. So valleyforradio.org slash donate. Um, and actually let's take a moment to, to do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a, uh, really cool, um, symbiotic relationship, uh, that has been found, uh, in the fossil rest record, but now also in reality, in in modern times. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Today, community broadcasting is more important than ever. Corporate interests affect what music we hear on commercial radio, and real news and opinion take a backseat to ratings and profits. Valley Free Radio is owned by its members, operated by volunteers, its programming created by your friends and neighbors, and it's wholly supported by the community. Please consider going to www.valleyfreeradio.org donate to support free speech in the Pioneer Valley. Thank you so much. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. As the COVID-19 vaccines become available, you may be asking yourself, should I get it? Will it help me get back to doing the things I love, like meeting friends or traveling? And can I do it without putting my family at risk? You've got questions. That's normal. So visit GetVaccineAnswers.org for the latest information on the COVID-19 vaccines. Getting back to the moments we miss starts with getting informed. It's up to you. A message brought to you by the Ad Council and the CDC. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. 
to provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we're back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to be talking about an interesting relationship. And so we've discovered a group of animals coexisting today off of the southwest coast of Japan, and this mirrors a relationship found in the fossil record that was thought to have broken up millions of years ago. The Japanese sea lily, a two-foot-tall crinoid animal, it's an animal despite being called a sea lily, related to sea urchins and starfish, has been found to be sharing their space with corals that lack skeletons and share space themselves with Metrodiodea, a type of sea anemone. The new paper, published in the journal Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, Paleoecology, outlines how these three animals grow together with the sea lily being the base, with the coral and sea anemones attaching themselves to the stalk and growing off of them. This was a common relationship in the Paleozoic, an age that ended 250 million years ago. After this period, the fossils no longer showed this cohabitation, until researchers found it hanging out basically in plain sight in modern times. Mikolai Zapalski, a paleontologist at the University of Warsaw and lead author of the new study, notes that the last fossil record of the coexistence is from 273 million years ago, despite the fact that the corals and crinoids are found in fossil deposits younger than the Paleozoic. But for unknown reasons, they were never found together. The sea lily most likely isn't affected by the smaller hangers-on, though theoretically they can compete for food. But for the coral, it allows them to get off the sea floor and into stronger currents with more food available for catching. And the sea lily stalk gives a firm structure for the polyps to attach to and prevents them from being dislodged by marine drifts. When the team looked at sea lily specimens under a stereoscopic microscope, they could see that the stalk resembles metal rebar, with the gelatinous coral using them for support. And so, once again, this is uh, one of those places where both, uh, this is a lesson about how the fossil record is unfortunately as detailed as it is it is also extremely extremely incomplete um and so clearly these animals have continued this relationship um but we just don't see it in the fossil record it may be that it is a readapt readaptation um but my my money is on that we just didn't find fossils of it and nobody was looking for them um, and of course, again, that's the other part of it is that there's so much we don't know about our modern oceans as well. And so we just continue to find out about new things 
that we had no idea about. Um, and so the ocean is definitely one of the places that is my favorite to talk about, which is why I wanted to talk about it tonight. Um, for the most part, because obviously, um, longtime listeners will know that the ocean is another one of my soapboxes. Um, and that I think that we should be doing a lot more to explore and understand our oceans, especially since they're kind of important. Uh, they're, you know, 70% of the earth is covered by oceans and we, as humans don't do a very good job of stewarding them. Um, let's be real. And so I think we need to really be spending more time studying them and obviously conserving them. And uh, speaking of conserving things, uh, obviously, once again, I do have to mention um, that this is Pledge Week at Valley Free Radio. And so if you are able to donate, that is so wonderful and amazing. Um, and so you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, and you can do either a one-time uh, donation or you can set up a subscription donation. And those really help um, because it's nice to be able to have sustained money uh, throughout the year. Um, but again, all volunteer all listener supported. Um, I would say at least 95% of our budget comes from the uh, donations of listeners like you. And so it's really helpful. Every dollar helps. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, very helpful and, and always great to see what great support we get. Um, so valleyforradio.org slash donate. All right. So we've talked about finding this renewed relationship between these different kinds of uh, odd animals. Um, that's one of the other things too. A lot of the animals in the ocean are really weird. Like sea lilies are actually animals. It's very odd. But anyways, we found a very exciting thing, which is a new kind of Dumbo octopus. So exciting. Um, and so this was the first time as well that one of these animals was described using completely non-invasive imaging. And so Dumbo octopus are deep sea dwellers, and they have these characteristic fins on their head, which give them the appearance of having, well, Dumbo-like years. And so the new species has been nicknamed the Emperor Dumbo and was first discovered in 2016 near the Aleutian Islands. Biologist Alexander Ziegler of Friedrich Wilhelm University in Bonn, Germany, was aboard a German survey ship, RV Son, when the adorable creature was caught in one of the vessel's nets. It was a really lucky find, Ziegler noted, because we weren't really looking for it. Plus, the whole animal came to the surface intact. Now, obviously, soft-bodied animals are often damaged by the nets, and the animal was pulled up from a depth of around 14,760 feet below the sea, where it would have been used to quite a bit more pressure than what is found on the surface. Now, Dumbo octopus are the deepest living octopus yet described by scientists. 
Most specimens are caught as, well, bycatch and are too damaged at the time they reach the surface to be identified. Usually, too, when you are describing a new species, you have to dissect it. You look at the internal structure, which would mean disassembling the specimen in order to describe it, Siegler said. But Siegler and his then-master student Christian Sigourney, now a doctoral student in the lab, used MRI and micro-CT scans to examine the specimen without having to destroy it. The only invasive step was to take a sample for DNA sequencing. They found that the cute little octopus was something new. They noted that the number of suckers on its tentacles, as well as the shape of the gills and beak, were unique. Christina was calculating these values and counting the suckers when we realized it didn't compare to other species, Siegler said. That moment when we realized we were, de- when we realized we were describing a new species, obviously, that was a pretty good moment. <laughs> and so they named the new species Crimpotuthis Imperator and suggested either Emperor Dumbo or Kaiser Dumbo as the common name because it was found on the slump on the slopes of the Emperor Seamount chain in the Pacific Ocean. And so, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, they're really cute. Dumbo octopus. I mean, I'm also really fond of uh, vampire squid, um, but Dumbo octopuses are pretty cool. They're kind of on the opposite end. Vampire squid are pretty weird looking. Um, they're they're definitely one of those uh, faces only a mother could love kind of species. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, let's move on now from tiny octopuses in the depths to really big things in the depths. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Archaeotuthis dukes, which is, of course, the world's largest squid that also, again, lives in the deep depths and is known to be very hard to film. Now, they are known to reach as large as 46 feet, which is about the size of a semi-truck. And until 2012, we only knew of them from corpses washed up on the shore or caught in deep-sea trawling nets. But in 2021, a team of marine scientists finally caught video of a young squid around 2,000 feet down in the water off the south of Japan. Um, sorry, in 2012, not 2021. Um, and then they were able to catch video again in 2019, this time in the Gulf of Mexico. And so now a new paper in the journal Deep Sea Research Part 1, Oceanographic Research Papers, has an explanation for why the beast is so elusive. Unsurprisingly, probably has a lot to do with their giant basketball-sized eyes, which are roughly three times larger in diameter than any other animal. Because they're so sensitive to any kind of light, the researchers hypothesize that by the time any kind of rover or bathysphere reaches the area they might inhabit, they've long since fled from the bright lights attached to these deep-sea vehicles. The successful runs were videos were videos which captured was where the videos were captured was almost certainly aided by the fact that their submersible, the Medusa, 
turned down the lights as they dived and then shut them off completely and ceased to move, much like a biologist trying to observe animals in their natural habitat on land might do. Think Diane Fossey, or I should say, think Jane Goodall. Um, and so they also illuminated the camera with a dim red light instead of the typical white light, white light used by other submersibles. And so they used the colorblindness of deep-sea creatures to their advantage. Many deep-sea species, including squid, have monochromatic visual systems that are adapted to blue light and blue bioluminescence rather than long-wavelength red light, the researchers wrote in the study. Using red light may thus be a less obtrusive method for illuminating deep-sea species for videography. They also used the same affinity to blue light to lure the animal. They used a rig called the E-Jelly, a small spinning ring of neon blue lights on the end of an outstretched arm to mimic the movement and glow of a bioluminescent jellyfish, a food known to be uh, one that is often eaten by squid. And in fact, it works so well that the squid in the Gulf of Mexico really tried to take the e-jelly as a meal. But this allowed them to measure the animal's tentacles, which were nearly six feet long just by themselves. So that is pretty fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, colossal squid are so amazing. Um, they're just... They're, they're really science fiction. Um, even though they're completely real, they're also just so incredibly amazing. And um, yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy to think about how there's so much in the depths that we know so little about. You know, we've only been able to video these animals twice. Um, and so, yeah. But um, it is definitely exciting to be able to see those videos and to be able to talk about it. And so, yeah, I'm able to talk about it because of viewers like you who are able to help donate to keep the station running. So uh, just one more time, uh, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay. So we are going to talk about another deep sea dweller, a rare female Pacific football fish, which washed ashore in California last week. The large fish was jet black with teeth that are reminiscent of tiny shards of glass with a long bioluminescent stalk on the top of its head. The fish was found on the shores of the Crystal Cove State Park's Marine Protected Area in Newport Beach by a visitor to the beach, Ben Estes. I don't know if he understood the implications of what he found, said Jessica Rome, an education coordinator at Davies Locker Sport Fishing and Whale Washing, uh, who told this to the LA Times. It happens when you're walking along, you find dead things here and there, and you just shouldn't just shouldn't be on the beach. The thing about this was that it was almost perfectly intact. Where did it come from, from that deep below? Now, because they live at a depth where there is no light, they have developed a modified fin that resembles a fishing rod, which in turn has a glowing bulb called an 
esca at the end. The esca glows due to tiny bacteria called photobacterium, which live within the pores of the bulb. Now, overall, there are 200 species of known anglerfish, ranging from very small to large fish like this one. They're also known for their extreme sexual dimorphism. While the female can get quite large, the males average around one inch long and are characterized as sexual parasites, as they will latch onto a female and are eventually absorbed into the female, leaving only their testes for reproduction. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife have taken custody of the fish while it's decided what will be done with it. L.A. County's Natural History Museum is hoping to be the recipient of the specimen. They have three other anglerfish in their collection, but only one is from California, and none are in such prime condition as this newly found specimen. Seeing this strange and fascinating fish is a testament to the diversity of marine life lurking below the water's surface in California's MPAs, and as scientists continue to learn more about these deep-sea creatures, it's important to reflect on how much is still to be learned from our wonderful oceans, Crystal Cove State Park wrote on a Facebook post. And uh, again, if you go to evidencebasedarata.com, you can see that picture, um, the really cool picture of that animal, and she is really fascinating. Um they're just really cool. Um, and so, yeah, that is very exciting. Um, and speaking of other exciting finds, we're actually going to move now from uh, the ocean to freshwater. But we're going to talk about another really cool thing that was found the other week. And so... A seven-foot-long sturgeon was found in the Detroit River and could be over 100 years old. Um, but just before we start talking about that, uh, <laughs> if you uh, are just tuning in, uh, this is Valley Free Radio's uh, Pledge Week, and uh, we really rely on people to donate in order to basically keep the entire show running. Uh, electricity, rent, equipment, all of that is supported. All of that is paid for by, um, by listeners like you. And so if you go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, uh, you can make a pledge there, and that is extremely, extremely welcomed. All right, so let's talk about this seven-foot-long sturgeon. First of all, the nice thing is it was caught by biologists who tagged the monster-sized fish and then released it back into the water. Very nice. So the sturgeon weighed 240 pounds and was six feet, ten inches, to be precise. The researchers assume, although they didn't have time to confirm, that this was a female, which was hauled briefly from the Detroit River in Michigan. According to U.S. Fish and Wildlife, it may be one of the largest ever caught in the United States, at least since we've been taking measurements. The researchers from the Al Alpena Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office, or AFWCO, 
were surveying Lake Sturgeon in the area on April 22nd when she was caught. As we pulled it in, it just got bigger and bigger, Jason Fisher, a fish biologist at the AFWCO who was involved in catching the sturgeon, noted. It ended up being over double the size of any fish caught in the area before. Our excitement was through the roof. It turns out that she's been able to elude researchers surveying in the area for over 20 years. Now, lake sturgeon are found throughout the U.S. from Hudson Bay to the Mississippi River. Males can live between 50 and 60 years, but females are believed to be able to live to be more than 100 years and thus can continue to grow because fish are one of those animals that continue to grow as they get older. Um, You know, the older a fish is, the bigger it is. And so these are fish that haven't changed their body form much from their prehistoric ancestors. They have a shark-like tail and rows of armored plates called scoots for protection. Now, sturgeon are bottom feeders, which is why they can avoid detection for many years. They feed on insects, worms, snails, crayfish, and small fish. They're actually toothless, though, and they use suction to feed. They are a large, charismatic fish, and a lot of people enjoy seeing them and knowing that they are out there, Fisher said. Now, of course, despite finding this beautiful old lady, Lake Sturgeon are currently listed as threatened in 19 of the 20 states in which they are found, including Michigan. This is mainly due to historical overfishing and subsequent pressure from pollution and loss of habitat, as dams and other flood control measures change waterways. But they are on their way back in Michigan and elsewhere. Michigan now has a population of over 6,500 lake sturgeon. And as much as she's a beautiful big fish, they think she's probably not even the biggest. I don't think we caught the, the biggest sturgeon in the system, said Justin Chiotti, a, fi- a fish biologist at the AFWCO who was not involved in the catch. There are historical accounts of even larger fish being found. So that's pretty, it's a pretty good fishtail. All right, um, we have a few more minutes. Uh, I do just want to mention valleyfreeradio.org slash donate uh, if you are able to help out. But I did want to talk about this last story because it's pretty neat. So we are going to move up onto the shore to talk about fossil footprints, but that are still connected to uh, the inland sea that once uh, in once invaded the continent of the United States. So several trackways have been found in the Hanna Formation in south-central Wyoming, and these represent the earliest signs of mammals at the seashore. 58 million years ago, the now landlocked Wyoming would have been on the edge of the Great Inland Sea, with large hippo-like mammals wading along in nearshore lagoons. Reporting in scientific reports, geologist Anton Robleski, an adjunct associate professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics and applied biodiversity scientist Bonnie Gulas Robleski of the Texas A&M Natural Resources Institute, report on the several fossilized trackways, most likely from the brown bear-sized Corypidon. Trace fossils like footprints record interactions between organisms and their environment, providing information that 
body fossil alone cannot, Robleski said. In this case, trace fossils show that large-bodied mammals were regularly using marine environments only 8 million years after non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. And so the tracks include both underprints, impressions in soft sediment made when heavy animals tread on overlying sediment layers, as well as prints pressed into the surface of the ancient tidal flats. They lie in a sandstone bed and feature more than half a half mile of prints from two different animals, one with four toes and one with five. The four-toed tracks suggest Curfidon, a semi-aquatic mammal similar to modern hippos. In the uh, artist's reconstruction, it looks like a cross between a hippo and a um, boar. The other prints are currently a mystery. Paleontologists have been working in this area for 30 years, but they've been looking for bones, leaf fossils, and pollen, so they didn't notice footprints or trackways, Robaleski said. When I found them, it was late afternoon, and the setting sun hit them at just the right angle to make them visible on the tilted slab of sandstone. At first, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I had walked by this outcrop for years without noticing them. Once I saw the first few, I followed out the ridge of sandstone and realized they were part of a much, much, much larger, more extensive trackway. The trackway was dated using fossilized plants and pollen and found to be from the Paleocene, around 58 million years ago. Before this find, the earliest known evidence of mammals frolicking along the seashore was from the Eocene, some 9.5 million years er later, or earlier, depending on... No, some 9.5 millions later. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the trackway is pretty impressive for other reasons. It's only the fourth such Paleocene mammal trackway in the world, and the first in the U.S. Two are found in Canada, and one in Svalbard, Norway. It's also the largest accumulation of mammal tracks in the world, both in the number of individual tracks and the length and breadth of the trackway. And, with two species, it's also the most taxonomically diverse. And so that is pretty impressive. Um, and so they may have been going there to access food or salt or other things that would have been limited in tropical forests of North America at the time. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. The political climate of today's world is extremely polarized, and nuanced conversations are dead. And I shouldn't have to say this, the bi-weekly chaotic good podcast, well, all of those things are still true. Co-host Nicole and Genre do their very best to hold honest conversations about everything political, from art to policy, finance, and electoral strategy, with humor and humility. From a couple of opinionated leftists dead set on creating a better world and fighting misinformation wherever and from whoever it crops up from. Search for I Shouldn't Have to Say This on your favorite podcast listening app, or you can visit saythiscast.com. I Shouldn't Have to Say This is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network.